Our first uh, scripture reading of the morning is one that you actually heard uh, last week as I began my uh, sermon series on the book of Genesis. We're going to look at it again. I've extended it a couple of verses beyond what we shared last week. So we're looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our uh, second scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament. It's a passage that I'm sure is very, very familiar to you. It's from Paul's great love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just by a show of hands, how many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? Well, believe it or not, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 in the context to which Paul wrote it, had nothing to do with weddings or marriages. It had to do with the community of faith as he was writing the Church of Corinth. But it has been co-opted for the occasions of weddings and marriages, and that's what I'm going to be doing today. But it certainly speaks to how we ought to be with each other. And so I invite you to join me as I read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Wonderful words from the Apostle Paul, who says... If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, I, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, 
but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. God, we thank you for these words that come out of your holy word, words that we have heard many, many times, and we pray that this morning they would take on new meaning and even new truth as they leap off the page into our lives so that we might reflect the light, life, and love of Jesus Christ in all that we do and say, for we pray it in his name, amen. Thomas Wheeler, the one-time chairman and CEO of the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company, and his wife were driving along the highway one day when he noticed that they were getting low on gas, and so he got off at the exit, and he came across this little run-down gas station that only had one pump. And so he asked the gas station attendant to fill the tank, check the oil, and then Thomas Wheeler got out of his car to, to stretch and and do a little bit of a walk, stretch his legs. Well, when he returned to his car, he noticed that the gas station attendant and his wife were engaged in a very animated conversation. But it stopped as soon as he got there and reached into his wallet to pay the bill. And as he was getting back into the car, he saw the attendant wave to his wife, saying, it was great talking with you. And so he wondered about that. Well, as they drove off, Thomas Wheeler asked his wife if she knew the man, and she admitted that she did. In fact, they had gone to the same high school and had even steadily dated for about a year. And so Thomas Wheeler was feeling pretty full of himself. He said, boy, you're sure lucky I came along. If you had married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant and not the wife of a chief executive officer, and replied Thomas Wheeler's wife, my dear, if I had married him, he'd be the chief executive officer and you'd be the gas station attendant. <laughs> I noticed at the first service, the ladies love that better than the guys do. Why is that? Well. Some people might say it just goes to prove that old adage that behind every successful man is a good woman. But you know, the truth is, it goes far beyond that. A supportive spouse is a blessing, no doubt about it. But you know, the Bible holds up marriage in an almost what I call sacramental way, where husbands and wives are called to love each other in ways that reflect the love of Jesus Christ himself. In our first scripture reading today, there are wedding bells in Eden as Adam and Eve come together and they become the Bible's first couple. God says, therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And while we know it was paradise at first, it was not going to be easy. The fact is, marriage can be hard sometimes for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons is because men and women are so different. Last week, we talked about how God has made us as these unique 
creative masterpieces of his divine handiwork. And while God made the two genders, male and female, similar, God also made us different. The similarities, of course, are in our basic humanity and our worth before God. It says in Genesis 1, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then when we flip over to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So men and women clearly have equal worth and value before God. And yet, and yet, for all of our similarities, we are different too. And God created these differences to be complementary, even though sometimes they can leave us enormously frustrated. I love the story that's told about the former prime minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, and this contentious relationship that he had with Lady Nancy Astor, who was the first woman member of the British Parliament. And though they shared very similar political values and sentiments, the two just seemed to grate on each other's nerves. In fact, one time, Lady Astor remarked, Winston, if I were married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. To which Churchill replied, Nancy, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, you don't need a PhD to understand there are basic differences between men and women, physiologically, socially, emotionally. And God designed us that way, and that's a good thing. Similar, but with important differences to complement and complete each other. And most importantly, through which the full image of God is expressed. This sacred one union flesh between a man and a woman that started all the way back in Genesis also tells us something about the nature of God's relationship with us. So I have a trivia question for you. How many sacraments are there in the Presbyterian Church? Make me proud. I'll wait till I hear the right answer. <laughs> Let me see, how many could there be? Uh, two, two, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Catholics have seven sacraments, including marriage. Now, we don't view marriage as a sacrament because the government gets involved and you need to send a wedding license into the state. But if you think about it, marriage has an almost sacramental quality. And marriage is sacramental in ways in which husbands and wives are called to relate and, and care for each other. And those ways are supposed to reflect the love of Jesus Christ himself. And, and God uses marriage to transform people as they journey through life together. And this journey through life is not just about paying off the mortgage, retiring comfortably, and doing the snowbird thing in Florida or some such place. I don't think that's just what this journey is supposed to be about. The true goal of the journey is a journey toward holiness. It's a journey toward more and more Christ-likeness in our lives. You see, within marriage, each partner becomes a vehicle through whom God works to draw us closer to himself. 
And the unique nature of marriage reflects the love of God in a way that no other relationship can. It's not that other relationships can't. They can and they do. But there is something mysterious. There is something special. There is something remarkable about this one flesh union. This diet of cleaving and clinging and permanency and faithfulness and dedication and devotion. It's a covenant. It's a deep union of oneness and new life with each other. And all of it serves as a microcosm of how God feels about you and me. So marriage is sacramental in the way each partner becomes a conduit of grace towards the other. For example, it is said that King Cyrus, and he was of the ancient Persian Empire, once captured a royal prince and his entire family. And when they were brought before him, King Cyrus began to negotiate with the prince for his freedom by asking, what will you give me if I release you? And the prince replied, I will give you half of my wealth. And if I released your children, the king asked. The prince answered, for my children, I will give you everything I possess. And then the king asked, and if I released your wife, what will you give, you, what, if, what will you give me if I released your wife? And the prince said, your majesty, for her, I will give myself. Well, it is said that King Cyrus was so moved by the man's devotion that he actually freed his entire family right away. And as they were returning home, the, the prince commented to his wife, what a noble and handsome man King Cyrus was. But with a look of deep affection for her, the prince's wife replied, I didn't notice. I can only keep my eyes on you, the one willing to give himself for me. Can you think of anything to reflect the love of Jesus Christ more perfectly than that? A man willing to give himself completely and unreservedly for his wife. A woman willing to defer such selfless devotion from her husband, each living sacrificially for the other, each demonstrating sacramentally the love of God in Christ Jesus for the other. And so it's the depth of this commitment, this, this pledge of loyal love that makes all the difference. And that's on days when the sun is shining in full force, but also on days when there are storm clouds approaching. Someone has said this, marriages may be made in heaven, but the work is done on earth. And it starts the moment that a couple says their I do's to each other. It's like the story of the two newlyweds who were working on fixing up their home. And the husband went into the attic to fix the attic fan. And as he lifted himself up, he bonked his head on one of the cross beams. And so he was dazed and he crawled along. And while he was crawling along in the attic, he picked up splinters in both hands. And then he cut his finger on the fan belt. On his way down the ladder, he missed the last two rungs and sprained his ankle. And so with a knot on his head, cuts in his hands, he limped into the kitchen, and his wife took one look at him and said, are those your good pants? <laughs> Not a great way to start a marriage as newlyweds, whether in heaven or in the kitchen. 
Now, I know just about all of you here, but I don't know all about your marriages. I don't really know how you're doing with each other. You know, marriage can sometimes make you feel like you are in boot camp doing that 100th push-up in the mud. But there are also times when marriage can transport you to the soaring joy like that of Christmas morning. And this much I do know, none of it can happen without that key ingredient, and that is love. And the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about this morning is what I shared with you in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an agape love. It's the same word he uses over and over in those something like 16 different characteristics and how he describes love. Agape love is patient. Agape love is kind. Agape love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Agape love never ends. Now, unfortunately, the world defines love in much shallower terms. And it usually comes across as, I love you because. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're intelligent. I love you because you're rich. I love you because you have tickets on the 50-yard line to all Penn State football games. <laughs> the problem with that kind of thinking is when we say, I love you because, what we're really saying is, I love you as long as you're beautiful, you're intelligent, you're rich, you have those tickets. But agape love is different. It's an unconditional love. It's a selfless, sacrificial, put the other person's needs first ahead of mine. It's the same kind of love that God came to bring us in Jesus Christ. You and I, think about this, you and I are loved by God because that is the nature of God's character. And believe me when I say this, there is not enough attractiveness in you or me to make God want to come down out of heaven and shower his love upon us. But we are loved beyond words because God has made the decision to love you and me. God made a decision to send his son to die on the cross out of a sheer tenacious unwillingness to let us go eternal grip kind of love. And so as I was thinking about it this week, wouldn't all of our marriages be far better if we were to set aside our own needs and knock ourselves out in trying to meet the other person's needs with that kind of agape love. And instead of worrying about, did, did I marry the right person? We would spend our time and our energy being the right person for the other. As I said, this is not a scripture reading that necessarily is specifically geared toward married couples. But agape love is never more obvious and evident than within the marriage covenant. Because at some point during most wedding services, this is after the processional, after the welcome, after the statement on the gift of marriage, after the prayers, after the scripture reading, after the message, that the couple turn and face each other and they exchange vows as they make promises as the kind of people they plan to be for the other within the marriage covenant. A couple weeks ago, I exchanged vows with Lisa, and we made a covenant. Yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating over Emily McCardle and uh, Sam Perkins' wedding. 
A couple weeks ago when John Minahan, who officiated our wedding, asked me during the wedding service on September 3rd, and John, will you have Lisa to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as you both shall live? Only the way he said it was a lot harder for me to remember and recite, and I got all tongue-tied, and he used all those fancy King's English words, but let that go. Well, I want you to know, I stood there all nervous with a basketball-sized lump in my throat. And I gulped. And I said, I will. It's one of the most holy moments of my life that I'll cherish forever. Because I made a covenant. God said to Israel, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And as with God's covenant, the marriage covenant transcends all changes, whether it's time or circumstances. And in a wedding ceremony, we're not just making empty promises, but we're taking sacred vows. We say, in the name of God, I take you. Or some of the old language from the liturgy from long ago would say, in the fear of God, in the fear of God, I take you. So at a wedding, we are called upon to ask God to give us the sheer determination to embrace this person as, as our spouse, as long as we both shall live. God's love for us is unconditional. It's an agape love. And the promises that God makes, God keeps. And he calls us to do the same for each other. In the Thornton Wilder play, The Skin of Our Teeth, George comes home from the war in Germany and he announces to his wife Maggie that he's found another woman and he's going to go and live with that other woman. And as you might imagine, Maggie has some harsh words for George. She says, I did not marry you because you were perfect. I did not marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults, and the promise I made made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married, and it was the promise that made our marriage. And when our children were growing up, it wasn't the house that protected them. It wasn't even our love that protected them. It was the promise. Love is more than a feeling. Love is cherishing. Love is intimacy. Love is commitment. Love is a life of togetherness. Love is a promise. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this <clears throat> grand old word, love. Thank you that you have defined that word with a name, the name that is above all names, and that is Jesus Christ, who showed his love for us on a cross and invites us to surrender to that love. Through thick and thin, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, you have loved us to the very core of our being. We pray, O oh God, that you would come among us this morning to help and heal marriages, 
to mend any wounds here in this room and in this church, to marriages that have grown stale, bring new vulnerability and risk. And Lord, for our young people, may the choices they make today be good for their marriages someday. Help us not to settle for anything less than your highest and best, that we would truly love our partner as Jesus Christ loves the church, passionately, tenaciously, and sacrificially. Lord God, we know that only you can fill the emptiness of our lives. Only you have a love for us that comes from unfathomable depths that you would die even for us. And so surround us, O God, with Christian brothers and sisters who can encourage us to live in your way. Thank you, Jesus, for your gift of unconditional agape love. For we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.